Okay. Uh, today's topic. Clive, you ready? Because I know that you need to know what the topic is. Your topic today is Jewish history was a ball, a study of the good times Jews have had throughout history. Uh, I'll say a little bit about Clive. I gave you his bio. It's like 25 pages long. When I picked Clive up at the airport, but the whole drive down, I didn't finish the bio. But I think he's, he has more master's degrees than everybody in this room combined. But he was voted number 18 in the UK's Jewish Power 100 list and awarded the Max Fisher International Prize for Jewish Education by the Jewish Agency in Jerusalem. He's a senior consultant to Limud. In fact, you were just at Limud because Limud in LA, sorry, in Europe takes place the week of Christmas every year. And when you started it, what, what did you have, 30 people? What did you say? What? 70. You started with 70 people, and the concept was, was, was many choices of education. And your most recent one, how many people were there this past? 2,500. 2,500 people. And that's what they get. <laughs> Clive is an internationally renowned Jewish adult education um, educator. He is uh, an active management education consultant. He's a magistrate, uh, which if you want to find out what that is, take him out to lunch and he'll tell you. He's a scholar in residence at the London Jewish Cultural Center. He's on the faculties of the European Center for Leadership Training and London School of Jewish Studies. He's a member of the Metropolitan Police Authority. In fact, he asked me what the difference between a sheriff and a police officer was. Please don't answer now, but after the program, please tell him. Um, boy, there's so much here. I think I'm going to stop there. Oh, I'll add a few things because you'll see why. After a BA in English and a postgrad cert certificate of education from York University, he became an associate of the Drama Board in Education. So I think you'll see some drama tonight, maybe. Uh, he has an MA in Theater and Film Studies, and an MED in Religious Studies, and an MSc in Educational Management. He broadcasts and has written widely in the fields of religion, moral education, and religious education. Clive, welcome to Orange County, and we look forward to studying with you. Thank you. Uh, well, good evening, everybody. Uh, if anybody needs a translation, I'm sure that can be arranged. Um, I, I just want to start with, uh, with two preliminaries before getting into my subject. Uh, the first preliminary is to tell you, in case you don't know, how remarkable this program is. Um, I've traveled the Jewish world um, and worked in every continent with Jewish communities. Uh, and over the course of the last year, as we've been setting this uh, program up, I've, of course, been mentioning it to my friends and colleagues that I'm coming. Uh, and people are astonished uh, that you're doing this. Uh, I think it's magnificent. Uh, and I hope you're proud of yourselves. Uh, and I hope you ensure that every time you get a new scholar come, each one of you brings someone else. Don't keep it cosy. Don't make it yours share it with everybody. Uh, so that's one thing. I hope you know that. Um, the second thing is just to mention Limud again. I mean, it's been mentioned already. Uh, I said there were 2,500 people came to Limud conference in the UK. Um, uh, what uh, I didn't say was that there were nearly 1,000 sessions on offer uh, during the course of the five days, presented by about 400 presenters from literally all over the world. Uh, but there are Limuds now all over the world. There's Limud in Turkey. Uh, there are four Limuds in Israel. There are about a dozen in the United States, three in Canada. Uh, they've spread all over Europe like a rash. 
Um, they're in uh, Australia, New Zealand. We've got a team starting up in China. Um, so Limuds are everywhere. And you have a Limud coming to your own doorstep. Right? And this is, I mean, it's called Limud LA, but it actually comes to your doorstep. So you've got a choice. You've got a global phenomenon arriving on your doorstep, and you have a choice whether to make the totally idiotic decision to miss it <laughs> or the obvious decision to attend. I mean, I, I don't want to stack the odds for you, but it seems to me that that's what you're faced with. Okay, so um, Jewish history, eh? I, I don't know how many of you studied Jewish history, um, I, but it, I'm sure you know that for most people, um, a, a summary of Jewish history will go something like this. You know, if they want to go all the way back, we were slaves in Egypt, right? And then, and then we got into Israel and, we, um, and the temple was destroyed and we were taken off into exile, into Babylon. Um, and then the temple was destroyed again by the Romans and we were exiled again. Um, and then there were the Crusades, uh, and then there was the Spanish Inquisition, uh, and, and, and then it was grim in Eastern Europe, don't quite know how we got there, but there we were and it was horrible, um, and then there was the Shoah, and here we are. And that's uh, basically Jewish history, I don't think I've missed anything <laughs> out really, uh, we got the basic run of that. Um, and, and what's interesting to me is nobody much seems to know what happened in between, right? Um, and, and this is remarkable because, you know, we are still here. I, I mean, we, we shouldn't lose sight of that fact. We are still here. I mean, I don't approve of graffiti on ancient monuments, but there is one piece of graffiti on this planet which just makes me grin every time I think about it. If you go to Rome... In the middle of Rome, in the middle of the Roman ruins, there is Titus's arch right across the road from the Colosseum, which has fallen down. And Titus's arch is not in a bad state, but um, everything else is in a pretty poor way. And on Titus's arch, this arch was built to commemorate the destruction of the temple, the conquering, the final conquering of Judea, and the exile and enslavement of the Jews. And, and in bas-relief on the inside of the arch, you have a carving of the Jews slapping the temple furniture. This is where we get the picture of the uh, menorah, the famous uh, picture of the menorah. We have a picture of the, of the Jews slapping this stuff. This, this uh, arch was made 1900 years ago or so by the Romans in order to demonstrate that they had finally, once and for all, done for the Jews, and that was that. Right. If you walk around the outside of the arch, down, low down on one of the columns, it must have been a very small Jew, um, <laughs> he, he, or maybe she, has carved Am Yisrael Chai. The people of Israel lives. It's a recent carving. It's only been done in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And this is on a ruin. A Roman ruin. Am Yisrael Chai. This Jew has returned 2,000 years later. And in a wonderful sense of history has said, na, 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 na. 
I mean, you couldn't do better, could you? I mean, what a wonderful, wonderful moment of statement, right? That you cannot suppress the Jews. Doesn't matter how hard you try, Jews keep popping up, right? And, and, and here we still are. I mean, you know that the Jews were exiled to Babylon, right, in 586 BCE. Well, actually, they weren't. They were exiled to Babylon before that. Um, most people don't bother to mention this. Just in the same way as they say that the Jews were exiled from the land of Israel in the year 70 when the temple was destroyed. But they weren't. They were exiled from the land of Israel 65 years later. We don't normally mention that. Our knowledge of Jewish history, present company accepted, of course, because you're the learned ones. I'm talking about the other... 73,000, right? That our knowledge of Jewish history is appallingly superficial and leaps from crisis to disaster to catastrophe without any sense of what stands in between. So the Jews went off into exile in Babylon. And you know what happened? They were exiled to Babylon and they were there for about 50 years before the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. And the Persians came in and they found the Jews there. And what were the Jews doing? They were all sitting about whinging, not about the air conditioning. They were whinging about the fact that they were stuck in Babylon. And they were going, oi! Well, they didn't do Yiddish in those days. But they were doing the equivalent, the Babylonian equivalent of, oi! They were saying, they were saying, uh, let my, if I forget the O Jerusalem, let my right hand be cut off. And let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Uh, by the rivers of Babylon there we sat down there. We wept there. We remembered Zion. Oh, please, why can't we go back? We're stuck in exile. Our lives are not complete. We should really be back in Jerusalem rebuilding the temple. So the king of Persia heard all this and thought these, guys, these Jewish guys look good. I mean, I like their monotheistic religion. Go, he said to the leaders of the Jewish people. Go back to Jerusalem. Rebuild your temple. Okay, you haven't got a lot of money. I'll fund you. Okay, you're a bit of scared. I'll send you soldiers to guard you so you can rebuild the temple. Go. And the Jews said, well, you know, we need to wait till the children are finished at university. We know everything about the Babylonian exile. We know how grim it was for us, enslaved, exiled to Babylon. What we never know is that the Persian king became the first Aliyah Shaliyah. Go back. I'll help you. I'll make it possible. And the Jews go, oh, I don't know, maybe in a while. I'll buy a flat in the Tanya, you know, right? <laughs> so most of the Jews stayed in Babylon. And they stayed. And they stayed. And they stayed. Right? Babylon nowadays is Iraq, Iran. Right? And we know that the Jewish communities, or, or the Jewish community of Iraq... Um, pretty well crumbled under considerable um, oppression in the 40s and 50s and then in the 60s and moved out. 586 BCE, 1940. I'm not going to ask you to do an exact sum, but you can figure out that's about 2,500 years. What was happening to the Jews of Babylon for 2,500 years. Nobody tells us, do they? Because there wasn't a massacre. 
There wasn't a pogrom. There wasn't a catastrophe. For 2,500 years, the Jews of Babylon were just getting on with their lives very pleasantly. We don't learn about that. Now, I would have thought 2,500 years of history is probably deserving a certain amount of attention. I would have thought, especially for the Jews of Babylon, which is one of the leading Jewish communities in Jewish history. But we don't get told about that. We all know about the Spanish Inquisition, don't we? Right? Because it was terrible, wasn't it? And the Jews and, and the exile. The Jews were thrown out in 1492. Right? Thank goodness they were getting America organised. Otherwise, where would we have gone? Right? Right? In, in 1492, the Jews were thrown out. The, uh, the Inquisition, the catastrophe, the Alto de Fe, all of those things. Right? How much do we know about the 400 years that preceded that? Terrible time. 400 years. You know, when I say this to Jews, they go, well, it was only 400 years. 400 <laughs> years would do me very nicely. If somebody said, we're going to be fine until the year 2412, I'm happy with that. I don't ask for any more guarantees. 400 years will do. Let alone 2,500. We go, ah, yes. But what about the Jews of the Rhineland? They were having a tough time. Well, they were and they weren't. Actually, the Jews of the Rhineland, that's the bit of land kind of that uh, links France and Germany, okay? Uh, the Jews of the Rhineland, where Rashi lived, the Jews of the Rhineland arrived in the Rhineland because they were enthusiastically welcomed in by the church and the state. We have documents, contracts by bishops and kings inviting Jews to live with them and giving them special privileges. Special privileges. Now, you may know that the Jews of the Middle Ages did not have a wonderful time all the time. That's true. Do you think it was so great to be a non-Jew in the Middle Ages? <laughs> and we were a bit anachronistic about this. We go, oh, it wasn't good. You know, they didn't have uh, air conditioning in those days, right? But nobody did. It wasn't good living in the Middle Ages. If you have a choice, don't go. That's my strong advice, Jewish or not. You think, oh, I'm a Catholic, then I'll go and live in 1126. Don't. Right? We go, oh, it wasn't good for the Jews. We're the only people who remember. The average non-Jew out there isn't going, oh, I don't think it was good for the Christians in 1126. Right? We're going on about it still. But actually, as we know, the Jews often suffered from local attacks. Yes, we know that in the Middle Ages. I don't know how... I mean, you're Americans. Do you do the history beyond the last two, three hundred years? Okay, good. I assume so. Right. I mean, we live it. We fall over bits and, and you know, town planning gets interfered with by things that happened in 1423 and so on, right? I, and I live in a house that's older than Orange County. Right? Yeah. Right? Um, so, so, I mean, I don't know how you do history here, right? So, but... but in, in, in the Middle Ages, the Jews were frequently subjected to antipathetic activity by their neighbours. Why? Because their neighbours were jealous. Jealous. So what were they jealous of? We never ask that question, do we? We just go, oh, the non-Jews were not very nice to the Jews. That was very bad, you know. We suffered. But why weren't they? Do you know that in 1215, 
That's a date, not a time, right? In 1215, the uh, Lateran Council, a, a Catholic uh, church council, um, determined on a policy in relation to the Jews. I mean, very clear about the fact that Jews should not be killed, right, because they were the people of God. It's interesting, the church never shifted from that position, always had difficulties with the evident fact that the Jews had an un... Um, unremoved covenant with God. It's always been a problem for the church through the ages. Right? Um, and indeed, the modern Catholic church has finally seized that fact and, uh, and asserted it as a statement about the Jews. If you're ever um, worrying about, for example, missionary activity on the part of some Christians in relation to Jews, you'll never find Catholics involved in that. Catholics now officially have accepted that Jews have their own specific covenant with God, which need not be interfered with. Right? But even through the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church recognised that there was something distinctive and special about Jews, and it was constantly a problem for them, couldn't resolve it. So they, they knew that they didn't think you should kill the Jews. That wasn't the thing to be done. But there was a problem. The problem was that the Jews seemed to be getting along very well. They were frequently amongst the most prosperous non-royalty or nobles in any given place. Well, so your average non-Jew looks at the Jews and thinks, they must be doing something right. Here am I, turning up to church every week, confessing to sins nobody else can imagine, right? And... And, and, and I'm, I'm grinding along in poverty. And there's a bunch of Jews who don't even bother to believe in anything worth believing in. And look, they're living the life of Riley. Do you have the life of Riley here? <laughs> right? They're living the life of Riley. Right? And, and so what's happened? You know, I, maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe the church is wrong. Maybe the Jews are right. So the church in 1215 promulgated a doctrine, a, a policy of contempt which was that Jews had to look like they were suffering. Right? Because otherwise, how do you persuade Christians to stay Christian? So they made Jews wear funny hats and put on stupid badges and stuff like that. You know. But even then, they couldn't hold them down. Even then, the Jews continued to be comparatively prosperous in every place. Which is why the Jews continued to suffer from jealousy from their neighbours. Let me give you another example you may have uh, heard of. Uh, you've probably heard of the blood libel, yes? This is the story uh, that says that Jews kill Christians, usually a uh, uh, Christian child. When it started, this blood libel, and I'm proud to say it started in England. <laughs> um, when, when it started, um, it didn't have the further embellishments uh, which, which subsequently emerged, the idea that Jews drank the blood of this Christian. Um, in those early days, it was simply an assertion that, that Jews killed uh, a, a Christian. It was just an accusation of murder, effectively, um, sometimes with some kind of ritual overlay, but nobody was too clear why the Jews were killing Christians except some kind of antipathy or maybe some devilish behaviour or something like that. But over time, as you, as you know, this story became further and further embellished into what we now call the blood libel, which is the idea that, um, that Jews killed an innocent Christian uh, 
a child usually, in order to drink its blood or, or bake the blood into matzah or, you know, those kinds of stories. Uh, by the way, um, this story, as I say, started in England. It started in Norwich, the first blood libel. Um, but there was an, a, a blood libel pretty soon after in a town called Lincoln. I don't know if any of you visited Britain, um, but if you have, there's a strong probability you won't have been to Lincoln. But Lincoln is a lovely, <laughs> lovely city still, an old medieval city. It has a beautiful cathedral in it. Um, and in this cathedral is the tomb of this little boy who was killed, found dead uh, in 11... 56-ish, something like that. Um, and uh, in the 1950s, a Jew visited Lincoln and went on the guided tour of Lincoln Cathedral, right? And the guide showed everybody around all the various different aspects of the cathedral. And uh, when they got to this tomb, they said, this is the tomb of little St. Hugh of Lincoln, who was killed by the Jews for their Passover sacrifice. 1950. <laughs> Right. This Jew, of course, was incensed by this and immediately didn't say anything to anybody there. As you hear, we don't complain face to face. We just go and grumble afterwards. Right. Um, but immediately they got home. They contacted the Board of Deputies of British Jews, which is the British Jewish representative body. Um, contacted the Board of Deputies, told them what they'd seen. The Board of Deputies immediately raised it with the Church of England, Church of England, raised it with the Lincoln uh, Cathedral authorities, and things were put right. So about ten years later, another Jew went to Lincoln Cathedral. Jews are not uh, regular attenders at <laughs> cathedrals. Not that regular at shuls, are we? Let's face it. Um, so went to, went to Lincoln Cathedral, and again went on the tour around Lincoln Cathedral, and the guide... Uh, when they came to the tomb, said, this is the tomb of little St. Hugh of Lincoln, who was killed by the Jews for their Passover sacrifice. Of course, they don't do it any longer. Right? Um, <clears throat> you see, things move forward, effectively. Great improvements. Um, they came back, complained, the board of deputies, blah, 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 right? Now, now it's really worth visiting, actually. There's a big sign-up on this tomb which says that this tomb is dedicated to remembering the uh, appalling disasters that can happen as a result of uh, ignorance, misunderstanding and prejudice, um, and let the, the memory of this boy uh, redouble our intentions to create good relations and, and so on. So it's all good stuff. Look, the church got it right, finally. Doesn't take long, does it? 800 years. Um, <laughs> and, um, and actually, you see, although it's the tomb of little St. Hugh of Lincoln, the Roman Catholic Church never made him a saint. In fact, the official, the Vatican, never, ever accepted any blood libel. Because the Vatican said... It's absurd. Jews don't drink blood. As you all know that. The Vatican knew it. They had good scholars of Judaism in the Vatican, always did. Right? They knew it. But of course, when a local town or village gets excited about something, the Vatican tries to hold it off for a while, or, you know, in the Middle Ages, until they realise that they can't resist it. And, and then they go with it. Right? I mean, they did that with Christmas, didn't they? With the Yule logs and Christmas trees and stuff. You know, if you can't resist it, eventually you have to go with it and incorporate it somehow. Right? Um, and that's the great strength and um, 
pliability of the church over the centuries. Um, but it, they never actually uh, formally beatified, made into a saint, any of these victims of these blood libels because the Catholic Church always officially said it cannot be true. Now, you all know it can't be true. Jews don't drink blood. I mean, uh, of, uh, probably all the food taboos we've got, this is one of the sort of top three, right? We don't, we don't do this. So how is it, how could it happen that this story would have got any purchase? Now, I've asked all kinds of people, and nobody comes up with very much of an ex uh, explanation, except the standard one. You know, Schwerzsteiner Yid, poor us, anybody will believe anything, that's the end of that, right? And I'm not satisfied with that. It's got to have, it's got to have some... It's got to make sense somehow. Even the most absurd stories have to make some kind of sense somehow to the person who chooses to believe it. So why would people believe that the Jews drank the blood of a Christian child? What, what would make them think this? Now, just remember this. We're in a period of time uh, in the early Middle Ages where all Christians in uh, Europe... Are, are Catholics, Roman Catholics. Okay, there's no Protestant church yet. Of course, in other parts of the world, a lot of Christians are Orthodox Christians. Um, that doesn't mean Haredim. That means uh, you know Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox or Coptic or you know that crowd. Um, but in Europe, it's Roman Catholic. That's your only option, right? Um, and every Catholic knows that the way to construct a relationship with God is that at least from time to time, you must take Mass, the Eucharist, communion, right? You must eat the body and drink the blood of Christ. It's the only way to get saved, the only way to keep your relationship going. And there's only one group of people, it's very hard to remember in our multicultural society, but back then, there's only one group of people in your town or village who are not turning up to church and therefore not consuming the blood and body of Christ. That means they're damned, doesn't it? There's no hope, no way of relating to God if you're not doing that. So damned. And yet, look, they seem to be getting along just fine. In fact, they seem to be getting on better than me. They must then somehow be consuming the blood and body of Christ. How can they do that? They can't get to it. It's guarded. It's kept in the church. It's under the, the care of the priests. You, they're not going to give it to the Jews. The Jews must be taking it somehow. How can they get the blood and body of Christ? Well, what's the nature of Jesus in this moment? A man of total innocence and purity, a godlike man. Well, then you have to find a Christian of total innocence and purity, a child. Take the blood of that child and then maybe, in some perverse way, you've found your own access. And that explains why the Jews seem to be living okay. You see, folks, all of this works... Only if you believe that the Jews are worth being jealous of. If the Jews were living a continuously horrible life, nobody would care much. Nobody would bother to believe these ideas. Because their doom would be spelt out in their experience. 
You have to keep constructing these experiences in order to persuade yourself that the Jews are actually not as lucky as they seem to be. And yet when we learn Jewish history, we never think about that. We only think about the end event, not the cause of the end event. You may know, for example, too, that uh, the Russian authorities in the um, uh, 1800s uh, decided to normalise the situation of the Jews. There was much discussion in the 1800s as to what to do with the Jews. We'd moved on to some degree from the um, Christian articulation of the issues. We were moving over into a more uh, sociological recognition of challenges rather than a religious one. So what to do with the Jews? Right. Well, normalise the situation of the Jews. I've I, I just noticed, by the way, you haven't got the Union Jack up there. That's... <laughs> Not sure I can carry on speaking. Well, um, sorry. Just... How unreasonable is that? Sorry, I distracted myself and you. Um, pay attention, concentrate. Um, they were going to normalise the situation of the Jews. Um, what, what did that mean? That meant making Jews like everybody else. And, and what was everybody else? Well, 1% nobility and 99% serfs, peasants, effectively slaves. Right? So, well, you're not going to make 1% of Jews nobility. Well, that's just absurd. You can't do that. So all the Jews got shoved off into the pale of settlement in order to become like everybody else, to become peasants like everybody else. If the Jews had been peasants, that wouldn't have been particularly upsetting. So what difference does it make whether you're a peasant here or a peasant there? But the fact of the matter is that Jews were the only, and admittedly Russia was not a particularly sophisticated society, the only middle class worth talking about. So of course it was a terrible upheaval for the Jews. The normalising of the situation of the Jews resulted in, within six months, 60,000 inns losing their landlords. 60,000 inns losing their landlords. That was the Jews. Well, you don't have to use a lot of imagination to realise that the landlord of an inn is in a far better place than most of the people who go and drink there. But we don't get told that. Because we're too busy remembering the fact that we ended up in the Pale of Settlement. We don't ask ourselves why. You may know about the Khmelnyky massacres. The Cossack massacres in 1648. Right? These were terrible massacres against the Jews. Um, led by Cossacks, largely from the Ukraine, um, entering into Poland. Uh, a, a, a ghastly, horrible shock to the Jewish people. Why did these massacres happen? Well, look, obviously there was some pretty deep-seated Cossack antipathy to the Jews. Why the Jews? Because the Jews were acting for absentee landlords. The Jews were the landlord's agents. Of course, the minute there's an upsurge of anger. It gets directed at the Jews because the Jews were kind of proxies of the people who nobody could see. But that means that the Jews were living a good life until the Cossack massacres happened. 
And the Cossack massacres happened not least because the Jews were living a good life. This happens again and again and again. Every time you look at Jewish history, you see that the Jews were living a good life. And that's one of the reasons why people turned on them in different places all over the place. But what you also see is that Jews have lived all over the world. Most people don't. I don't know if you notice that. Most people tend to stay put. Jews have lived all over the world, sometimes as a result of expulsion and exile, but sometimes as a result of Jews living all over the world. Right? I don't know if you know that right across Asia, there's a kind of string of pearls of Iraqi Jews who moved across Asia and established fabulously wealthy business empires. Right? In Hong Kong, in Shanghai, in Singapore, uh, all, all across there. These great Sephardi, Iraqi, Baghdadi families, the Kaduris, the Sassoons, right? <laughs> all of these families. And if you go to um, Mumbai, Bombay in India, you will see the um, library, the Sassoon library. Why? Because the Sassoons were really big and wealthy in India. If you go to Hong Kong, you'll see the Jewish community of Hong Kong, a seriously wealthy community in Hong Kong. If you go to Singapore, it's a much smaller community, but its shul and its resources are beautiful, beautiful. Right. Shanghai, of course, got overturned in the war with the uh, Japanese and so forth. Right. But nevertheless, the Shanghai community in its time was astonishing. Now where are these Jews to be found? Go to Bangkok. You'll find them there. There's a good Sephardi settlement in Bangkok. There's a couple of shuls in Bangkok. And Shabbat lunch anytime you want it and not provided by Chabad. <laughs> it's, it's there. Why is it there? Because the Jews spread out. The Jews have an international outlook. The Jews are, in fact, and have always been, amongst the most fortunate, affluent, mobile, connected, educated people on the planet. We still are. And so we go around saying how sorry we feel for ourselves. It's unsustainable. We have to stop. We have to start telling the truth about Jewish experience, Jewish realities, Jewish history. If for no other reason that we want to encourage our children to be Jewish. Who thought that they kill us, join? <laughs> right? It's, it's a good advertising slogan. Right? We say to our children, oh, everybody hates us, I hope you'll be very Jewish. <laughs> I know you've got a free choice, but I hope you'll choose the people who everybody hates. This was um, a decision we made, I think in the 19th century, actually. I mean, of course, of course, anybody who's, um, I don't know how many of you are 
uh, anally retentive about these uh, Jewish details, as I am. Um, but anybody who's read the keynote on Tisha B'Av, do you do that? Anybody do that? Tisha B'Av? <laughs> Keynot. Okay. So Keynot are these miserable dirges. There's hundreds of them. They go on and on and on forever. As if Tishbab isn't tedious enough already, they give us Keynot in order to depress us even more. And these Keynots have been written since the 7th century, and, and they, they list how horrible it's been for Jews in different circumstances, right? And we do it all on Tishbab. Why do we do it on Tishbab? Because we don't want to do it every other day, right? Jews have been very careful to put their misery in certain places. <laughs> and when you count up the days around the year, we have an awful lot more happy days than miserable days. Right? And we're very careful not to put misery all over the place. In fact, the rabbis are very specific about them. We don't multiply these days. That's why we bundle everything on the days we've got already. Right? On Thursday, we've got the 10th of Tevet. Right? I don't know if you're lining yourself up for that. Right? <laughs> the 10th of Tevet. Right? It's a fast. Um, it, it's a short fast. In England, it's even shorter. You just kind of basically miss lunch. Get up a bit early. <laughs> miss lunch. Right? Over here, I think you've probably got to work a bit harder. But there you go. Um, but the 10th of Tevet. You know, no, what's the 10th of Tevet about? Nobody's got a clue. Right? Nobody's going to remember anymore. Right? So what do we do with the 10th of Tevet? We shove on to it other stuff. Right. Um, I'm going to be doing uh, some sessions, I think, about the Haredim, if you want to know about the Haredim. Um, but the Haredim argued that if we wanted to remember the Shoah, the Holocaust, we should do that on the 10th of Tevet. It's very interesting. Right? The 10th of Tevet, the reasons for the 10th of Tevet, um, are pretty well forgotten by most people. It's quite hard to get yourself stirred up for the fact that the Babylonians breached the walls of Jerusalem. You go, oh, I think I should do without lunch for that. Right? It just doesn't, it's very hard to make it work, right? But there's this fast day on the calendar. So what did the Haredim suggest? The Haredim suggested we've got a catastrophe that's happened, the Shoah. Let's commemorate it on this fast day. Now, as you all know, this didn't bite with the Jewish people, right? It didn't work. Right. First of all, Israel invented its own day, which is rather odd, given that it's in the middle of the Sfirah, just after Pesach, during the month of Nisan, which is not a time when we normally do miserable things, and not for any sensible reason that anybody can think about, uh, except that it's exactly one week before Yom Ha'atzmaut, and Israel wanted the narrative of out of the catastrophe of Europe came the flowering of Israel. Um, but it's, nobody really kind of knows quite what to do with your Shoah. I don't know what you do with it here. Right? But in Israel, it's all kind of rather un-Jewish. Right? Saluting flags and standing in silence and playing solemn music and stuff. Right? And Jews don't do that. You know, when Jews are mourning, they all talk, don't they? They don't stand <laughs> in silence. They go around condoling with people and saying stuff and eating. Right? <laughs> Right? So we, we don't really know what to do with Yom HaShoah. It might work with a, with a state, you know, with flags and soldiers and so on. Right? Interesting enough, Menachem Begin uh, wanted to do away with Yom HaShoah. Menachem Begin wanted to do away with it. Right? What he said was that there's two things to commemorate. The heroism and the catastrophe. So the heroism, we can remember... Uh, on Yom Azikaron, the day before Yom Atzmud, when we remember the people who died fighting for the Jewish people. It doesn't matter whether they fight, died in Israel or died in Europe. They died fighting for the Jewish people. Remember that. We have a day to remember that, says, said Menachem Begin. 
In terms of commemorating the people who died, he said, let's do it on Tishbaf. We've got a day already for misery. Why make another day? Right? So that's quite interesting. Didn't want to do that. So we have these fast days, but very few of them. And we bundle onto them our miserable things. And so, of course, on Tishbaf, the, 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 the biggest of them, uh, we have the largest collection of kinot, of these dirges, to say. And so, of course, we do have that story. But for most of the Jewish history, Jews have felt good about themselves. For most of Jewish history, we have known exactly who we are. We are, as you all know, the people beloved of God. That's who we are. We're God's chosen people. That's, that's, every Jew knew that. And so if things went well for the Jews, not surprising, because God was looking after us. If things went badly for the Jews, not surprising, because God is punishing us. Because he wants high standards from us, and we've failed, we've fallen below them, we should try harder. Right? If, if people were jealous of us, it's not surprising, because, you know, God looks after us. If people treated us badly, it's not surprising, because they were jealous of us, because God treats us well. Right? We, that was our answer. In every circumstance, we knew that we were the people beloved of God. And you know what? That makes the Jews very proud and self-confident. Optimistic. Keep going. Fight on. Move on. We'll survive. Spread out. Keep going. Then in about the 19th century, we suddenly kind of lost our confidence. I mean, maybe it was something to do with the Enlightenment and the death of God, you know, that old rumour, not yet proved. Um, but the idea, you know, that, that, that this idea of confidence in God, trusting in God, that God looks after us, that we're God's chosen people, this feels a bit uncomfortable, it's unsustainable. We lost confidence in it. And so the central myth of the Jewish people, the self-defining nature of the Jewish people, the people beloved of God, fell apart. And we had to find a substitute. And the substitute we found was perhaps the most catastrophic substitute we could have found. We decided that we are the people hated by people. That's who we are. Uniquely. Remarkably, extremely, the people hated by people. That explains everything you need to know about the Jews. We are the people hated by people. This is a horrible, horrible self-image. And yet it's one that's got such deep grip on the Jewish mind now in the 21st century that we hardly even notice it as we tell it to our children and grandchildren. I don't know about here in, in, in the United States, but in Britain, uh, we have uh, security on our buildings. Right? We have a, a, an organization called the Community Security Trust, um, and it recruits young volunteers who stand outside buildings in all weathers, and when we do have all weathers, and, um, you know, and they stand in the freezing cold and the fog and the snow and the hail and the ice with their little walkie-talkies, Talking into them, I suppose, I don't know what they say. But they stand outside. Right? It is more easy to recruit a young person to stand outside a Jewish building than inside it. <laughs> Why? Because the motivation that we are the people hated by people motivates that young Jew. 
That's the story. That's what they know about Jews. Say, come inside and find out how we're the people beloved of God. Come inside and find out how great it is to be Jewish. Doesn't really speak to me that. Don't know what to do with that. But give me a job, stand outside and deal with the anti-Semitic. Oh, that'll do. Why should we remember the Shoah? Why should we be Jewish? So that Hitler could not have a posthumous victory. What is the motivation of the Jewish people to spite a dead Nazi? Well, what kind of motivation is that? He's dead, for goodness sake. Got to find something better than that. 60, 70 years on, what tale are we going to tell? So for no other reason than self-interest, we have to redress the balance. We have to remember that at any time, at any time, that we can identify a catastrophe happening to the Jews somewhere, there was a huge proportion of the Jewish community living somewhere else having just a fine time. And of course we don't know world Jewish history. Most Ashkenazim haven't got a clue what Sephardim were getting up to for most of the time. We know about the expulsion from Spain, but do we know about the wildly enthusiastic invitation from the Sultan of Turkey for the Jews from Spain to come to Turkey? Do we know about that? Do we know that in 1992, the Turkish government had a full-scale government year of celebration to mark the 500th year of Turkish Jew living in Turkey? 1992. Now, you know, I know what half of you are thinking straight away. Yeah, well, that's all very well. But look what Turkey's doing now. Because you don't like good news. <laughs> Makes you nervous. The minute I say anything good, go, yeah, it's all very well. But I <laughs> yes, of course. At just about any minute in Jewish history, something was going wrong for somebody. That's, that's the way it is. Jews were all over the world. Therefore, the probability is that Jews were getting it in the neck somewhere <laughs> by someone. But all the other Jews everywhere else were not. And we don't tell that in our studies of Jewish history. So it's time to redress the balance. Time to say how lucky we were and are. Time to notice the wonderful, wonderful good news of Jewish history, Jewish experience, the stuff that made the Jewish communities, not just that we came from in the last hundred years, but the Jewish communities that all of Jewry came from in the last two, three thousand years. Remember Am Yisrael Chai. Remember the crumbling Titus's arch in the ruins of Rome. You've never met a Moabite. <laughs> Thank you. So I, I believe we have uh, time for questions. Or uh, well, I don't know how you do it here. Um, in Britain and in other countries, um, uh, Jews tend to make speeches when they give them <laughs> opportunity for questions. 
and I'm not sure if I can stop you doing that. So if I could just ask you to finish your speech with a little interrogative lift, as if to suggest it might be a question. It'll give me something to say in response. Okay. Hmm? Uh, no, I'm fine, thanks. No, no. I, I, I'm not being Californian. I don't feel I have to drink water at every available opportunity. Yes. Yes. We've heard so much in the past about Jews as moneylenders in the, you know, the being, Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, and then being sent out of the country when the king you know, couldn't get money from them. Yes. Um, well, uh, Jews were certainly money lenders. Um, as you probably know, um, uh, well, goodness, we're in the middle of a credit crunch, aren't we? So we know that money lending is essential. Right? If people stop lending money, we're all in trouble. That's precisely our problem now. People don't trust each other to, send, to um, lend money. And people trusted the Jews. That's why they were money lenders. Right? People trusted the Jews. Of course, as we know, the Catholic authorities um, declared usury a sin. The lending of money at interest is a sin. Uh, and it had to be done. So luckily, you've got your local non-Catholics, the Jews, and they can do the lending of money. And they were trusted. Now, as you may also know, I don't know how it works here, and I'm not sure what the sensibilities are in, 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 in the United States. But in Britain, if you borrow money at interest... There's a certain feeling that that's not necessarily a wise thing to do, really. Does he have that feeling? Is there something of that? It's kind of get into debt. It depends on the level of interest. And not too sure whether that's the right thing to do. But if you take out a mortgage, that's a piece of responsible planning for the future. <laughs> Taking out a mortgage is investing. Now, borrowing money at interest is uh, making yourself a bit vulnerable. You don't know how it's going to work out, right? It's very odd, isn't it? Very odd how a mortgage has this kind of halo of saintliness around it. And interest has kind of slightly sleazy, not too sure what... This all goes back to the Middle Ages, right? Because in the Middle Ages, all right, Catholics were not allowed to lend money at interest. So if I wanted some money and I didn't have any local Jews around about, how did I get it? Well, what I did was I went to the guy who was wealthy, usually local nobility, and I said, I need some money. And the local noble would say, well, I'll tell you what, I will take a, a, an option on your property. And if you pay me the money back, all well and good, and then I'll let you have your property back. Right? But if you don't, then I'll take your property. And indeed, if you die before you've paid it back, I'll take your property too. Uh, in fact, you will engage your property unto death to me. Mort gauge. Right? Now, when you think about it, borrowing money at interest is an awful lot more attractive... <laughs> But oddly, because it was the transaction which was conducted between Christians, mortgage grew to have this sense of being proper behaviour, whereas interest grew to have this sense of being an unpleasant transaction. Now, we, we should remember, of course, the idea that usury is a sin is not news to Jews. It comes from the Torah. Right? And Jews have done some... Uh, uh, 
clever jiggery pokery in order to manage that particular <laughs> problem, right? Um, but in in general, uh, the idea that uh, that Jews were money lenders um, has certainly uh, created jealousy and conflict. Um, and often people who borrowed money from Jews didn't want to pay it back, so they would attack their local Jews or stir the mob to attack their local Jews. This is a particular issue in certain parts of Europe, specifically Britain, France, and Germany. Right? It wasn't the profile or characteristic of Jews in Spain. It wasn't the profile or characteristics of Jews in Eastern Europe. Those of you who've got Russian or Lithuanian or Polish histories will not have any particular record of that moneylender thing. One thing you might notice, though, which is quite interesting, creeps into the language repeatedly. I don't know how good your New Testament knowledge is, um, but in the New Testament, we're told that in the last week of Jesus' life, when he enters Jerusalem, it's a very interesting story, but I know you're going to be studying Christianity and the early days of Christianity in due course. But just to point out to you, I don't know if you've noticed this, right? Jesus goes into Jerusalem on a donkey, doesn't he? Right? The people throw down palm branches and they sing Hosanna, don't they? Right? And a week later, it's the Last Supper, and, and Jesus is after that crucified. And a lot of people think the Last Supper was Seder. And certainly the crucifixion, um, if it happened, happened at Easter time, which is Pesach. Yeah? Well, if the people are throwing down palm branches and singing Hosanna, that's Sukkot. Jews should know that. So when somebody tells you that Jesus entered Jerusalem and a week later it was Pesach, Jews should be saying, sorry, no, can't be. Something's wrong there. It's six months later. Right? So just by the way, you know, we can use our Jewish knowledge to understand what's going on or to challenge the narrative. It's not a particularly significant thing. You know, you can conflate a narrative in order to get a bit more dramatic dynamism to it, right? But nevertheless, um, what do we have in and Jesus in that week in Jerusalem goes into the temple according to the um, according to the New Testament and overturns the tables of the. Money lenders, no. Money changers. And yet time and again, time and again, you will hear people talk about the money lenders. What were money changers doing? That They were travel acts, right? That's right. People came from all over the, the, the world. Why did they come from all over the world? Because Jews travel. They weren't exiled yet. Why were they all over the world? Because Jews spread out. Jews travel. Jews seize opportunities. Did you know, as you know, every empire is a system for drawing money, sucking money into the centre from the provinces of the empire. That's all empires are like that. They're basically ways for enriching the central group at the cost of the various different provinces and colonies that have been secured. Right? And the Roman Empire is no exception to that. All monies flowed in, right? Taxation, tax collectors were sent out all over the Roman Empire to collect money and draw it in. And all money flowed from the outer edges of the empire into Rome. There was only one group of people that was allowed to send money out of Rome to somewhere else. In all of Roman history, in the entire Roman Empire, there's only one group of people that was allowed to send money out of Rome to somewhere else, and that was the Jews. 
the Jews were allowed to send their money to the temple. Did anybody tell you that? So, of course, we had all these people coming from all around, and they came with their euros and dollars and... <laughs> Or nowadays we like to say drachmas and marks and francs and things, right? Um, they came with all these things. And of course, if you want to buy a pigeon, you need to know what the exchange rate is. So that what they had in the temple was money changers. This is travel X. This is what you see in every airport, right? This is just money changers. And yet, time and again, you will hear them referred to as money lenders. It's a little slip of the tongue that should be challenged by every Jew regularly because it betrays a... a, a a crude misrepresentation of the Jews, just by the way. Yes? Just to add on to the question, my understanding was that the Jews were money lenders during the Middle Ages because they were excluded from being able to pursue a live, any other kind of a living. Well, that's not entirely true. I mean, it's partially true. Um, they were certainly excluded from uh, pursuing many other livings. I mean, the obvious thing was farming. Pretty well everybody farmed, uh, and Jews were not allowed to own land in, in those countries, in Britain, France, and, and, and Germany. Not allowed to own land, and therefore farming was unlikely. Um, Secondly, in these countries, um, especially as things unfolded, um, trade guilds started to come into being. These were closed shops, a bit like trade unions, cl closed shops in order to control the number of people who came into a trade so that there would be a living for the people who did it. So if you were a, a baker, you didn't want too many bakers, obviously, because then you couldn't sell your bread. So a trade guild would... Um, prevent people from becoming bakers until they'd been through an apprenticeship and a journeymanship and so on and so forth. Um, and Jews were not allowed to join trade guilds. It's not altogether clear why. Um, many people just think, well, it's anti-Semitism, that's that. Right? Well, I don't think it was. I think trade guilds were fellowships which operated on the, on the word of a Christian. It's very important. That's how trust works in a society because you feel that you share... Um, common understandings and terms, and Jews didn't. But one way or another anyway, Jews were not able to join those trade guilds. So as a result, they were unable to, to uh, become artisans, right? But the result of that is it didn't prevent Jews from trading. And so Jews traded internationally. They crossed boundaries. And it made Jews, in fact, much more flexible. The restrictions placed on Jews have nearly always ultimately turned out to explain why Jews have so many remarkable capacities. Because it's made us more creative. It's made us try and think of ways around, other things to do. Right? While everybody's plodding about being a farmer and a baker, the Jews are thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, I think I could probably sell some bread to somebody somewhere else. Right? And then moving on. So, yes, there were those restrictions, certainly. Yeah. For a period of time. It was not, not for that long, for two or three hundred years. Well, yes, I mean, Jews certainly got into, into doctoring. They wouldn't have gone into lawyer, law because law was pretty well all defined by the church and the king, right? Um, but they certainly got into, into medicine. Um, science, of course, in the early Middle Ages was quite distrusted. People were not quite sure whether science was somewhere in the boundaries of of magic and witchcraft and so on. Um, so quite distrusted, and anybody who went into that was in some danger of being misunderstood. Uh, but certainly medicine. Um, Christians were very poor with medicine. Um, Muslims, of course, were good at it um, in, in those days. 
uh, and Jews. Uh, and, they, and, and many Jews cultivated huge reputations and traveled all over the place um, to, to, to provide medical support. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, you said that uh, we should think of the Jews as the chosen people and that God has required a great, a higher standard of the Jews. And when they don't meet that standard, they're punished. How do you explain the Holocaust? Why were the Jews punished? What did they do wrong to cause that? Okay, well, I, um, I, I didn't say that. I said that's what Jews used to say to themselves, okay? So just to be clear, um, I mean, I'm not uncomfortable with the statement, but when I said it, I was saying that's what Jews said to themselves, and that's how they felt proud and confident of themselves. Um, you've asked a question which um, I, I define as tiger country, and I didn't bring a gun. Um, this is, this is, these are tough questions. So I'm so pleased. My first lecture, and I'm already, <laughs> already having my legs chopped off. Here. Okay. Um, what is the question? How do I explain the Shah? I don't. I can't, and I have no intention of trying. I certainly have no intention of coming up with glib stupidities that some other people do. Right? And I'm not going to try and drag theology into it. I don't get it. I don't know. Right. I can certainly have a good stab at explaining the Shoah sort of historically or sociologically or the, the, you know, psychologically, those kinds of things. But theologically, I have no idea. And I take refuge in the book of Job in this. The book of Job, an underknown book of the Bible, um, uh, is a book entirely devoted to the question, the, the key question, why do bad things happen to good people? Right? And, and, and that question, frankly, is the Shoah question. Right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Whether it's in millions or individually, the same conundrum exists. Um, and the book of Job has Job as, a, as an ideal person, really, an idealised person. Um, and a really, really strange narrative. If, if you don't know it, it's, it's worth a read. Don't bother with the middle, it's terribly boring. But <laughs> the beginning's quite good, and the end. Um, and the narrative is this. Uh, right, there's Job, a perfect fellow, uh, living a perfect life. Uh, not necessarily a Jew, we don't, don't know who he is really or where he lives, right? but, but a, a good guy. Um, and, and then the, the, it's quite cinematic, really, because the, the, the scene shifts to heaven. And there's God on his throne in his court. Which is in itself quite a sort of primitive definition of how it works. Right? And there's God on his throne in his court, and in comes the Satan. I'm going to insist on calling him the Satan and not Satan, which is the way it's often translated. Because Satan in Hebrew means the adversary, the opponent, the challenger. Right? And he's clearly part of God's system. He's not the fallen angel Lucifer. He's not Milton. He's not Paradise Lost. He, and he certainly hasn't got a fork and horns and that <laughs> business. Right? But he's the Satan. I always see him rather like the Fonz, you know, kind of leather jacket <laughs> and a quiff. Maybe chewing a bit, you know, those, those shoulders. You know? Right? He comes in and God says, well, where have you been? And he says, you know, up and down. <laughs> and God says, well, what, what, uh, what have you found out? And he says, oh, they're a terrible lot, those human beings. <sighs> Not a good one amongst them. God says, well, I don't think that's true, actually. I think there are some good ones. <laughs> oh, no, I've seen what they're like, says the Satan. No use. 
Right? And God says, no, 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 there are some good ones, some really good ones. <laughs> Satan says, well, like who? God says, well, what about Job? He's good. He's, I mean, he's just a perfectly fabulous guy. And the Satan says, well, it's not surprising, is it? I mean, the way you treat him, of course he's good to you. Of course he sacrifices to you. I mean, you've given him a fabulous life. Right? And God says, no, 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 no. I think he's genuinely good. Right? And the Satan says, I bet you. God says, you're wrong. He says, you can do anything you like to, Job, so long as you don't harm him. Scene shifts back down to earth, and there's Job sitting on a dung heap, right? And all around him is a you know, collapsed house and dead children and camels slaughtered. and that Disaster, right? And his wife standing next to him going, well, I told you, you know, you keep praying to God and don't do you any good, right? And Job says, well, you know, God gives, God takes away, and praise be God. I mean, we were grateful for all the good things. I've got to accept the bad things. Scene shifts back up to heaven. God says to the Satan, see, told you. And the Satan says, well, it's not surprising you told me I couldn't harm him. Of course he's feeling good. So he says, all right, you can harm him, but you can't kill him. So back down to earth. And there's now Job on the dung heap, and he's covered in boils and pus and all sorts of horrible things. And he says, well, you know, what can you do? I mean, I had my health. And then along come three friends, Job's comforters. Right? And they say, oh, well, you know, terrible, what's happened to you? But then we always thought that you couldn't be as good as you cracked up to be. So come on, tell us, what did you really do wrong? Job says, I didn't do anything wrong. He says, no, 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 no. Things like this don't happen to people unless you did something wrong. Job says, I never did anything wrong. And they go, come on, come on, you can tell us. What did you do? Right? And eventually Job loses it and, and, and says, okay, I don't, look, it's enough. I didn't do anything wrong. I don't know why this is happening. God, just kill me. Had enough. Right? Just before you kill me, just explain what's going on here. How does this work? Right? This is the answer. This is the question. There's a book in the Bible, for goodness sake, that deals with this. And there's thunder and lightning, big Hollywood scene, right? And a voice from heaven says, this is the answer. This is what we all want to know, right? You ask the question, I'll tell you what the Bible says. It says, you wouldn't understand if I tried to explain it to you. <laughs> how can you don't understand how I run this world? How, what, what's the point of me trying to explain? Do you know how the grass grows? Of course you don't. You can't even understand that. You think I'm going to explain how the whole system works? No, I'm not going to. And Job says, eventually says, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. And then the house gets rebuilt and he has some more children. The camels come back and it's all, you know, right. And the, the rabbis are pretty clear. You don't have to believe this story, right? Nobody's suggesting this is history. But it's clearly, I mean, also the rabbis decided to put this book in the Bible. They didn't have to. You know, every book in the Bible is there because of a decision. Okay, I don't want to get too controversial around the Torah. <laughs> right? But certainly by the time we're into Nach, into the Nevi'im, and in the Ketuvim, the third section, right, we're here with decisions. Right? And they, they put in the book of Job. You can imagine a bunch of rabbis going, I don't think we're going to put this in. This isn't going to help anybody at all. This is just going to depress them. I mean, there's God, you know, up there gambling, going, well, you know, let's have a go. Let's do a zap. Oh, that's funny. Look what I just did. You know? I mean, that's very odd, isn't it? But yet there it is. 
And we are meant to look at that and feel puzzled, I think. And meant to look at it and think, look, stay off it. Don't try and explain this stuff. That's why I think it's horrendous when people purport to explain it. Go, well, you know why the Shoah happened? Because of this, because of that. Right? And positive and negative. Some people want to suggest that it happened in order to bring about the, you know, the state of Israel. Some people want to suggest it happened by way of a punishment. So whether it was a prompt or a challenge or a what, it's all nonsense. Nobody knows and nobody should pretend to know. The one thing we have done traditionally as Jews, which of course nobody's doing about the Shoah, and I'm not sure that I would want them to, the one thing we've done traditionally as Jews is every time something's gone horribly wrong for the Jewish people, up until now, and of course this is because we've lost this myth of ourselves as the people beloved by God, every time something's gone horribly wrong for the Jewish people, what we've said is, oh dear, we better pull ourselves together and try harder. Right? Now, we didn't have the emotional energy or whatever it was necessary to do that after the Shoah. And it probably would have been misplaced to do it. Right? But what some people have done in a kind of strange, perverted imitation of it is to say, well, the Shoah, those people should have pulled themselves together and tried harder. Right? And of course, that was never the Jewish thing. The Jewish thing was, things have gone wrong, I should try harder. Not things have gone wrong, those people loused it up for all of us. Right? That's the horrible thing which people have said after the Shoah. But there it is. Yes? Um, just a question. When you give this presentation around the world, I assume you've given it in many countries, this topic, uh, I'm wondering, where do you get the most resistance to the message? Or it, conversely, where do you get acceptance of the message when you're trying to get people to be happy about Jewish history and where we are and you find people resistant to it? Are, is there, is it a, a, do you get the general same response whether you give it in England, uh, France, United States, Turkey, if you're going to go to Limud? Um, or are there different places in the world where people are more open to what you're suggesting? Well, I'm such a brilliant presenter that I sweep all <laughs> people before me. Um, so on the day... Generally speaking, people are bowled over or just stunned into silence or something. <laughs> what happens, actually, is people come back to me afterwards. Right? Once they've processed it all and, and re-established their original position, they then, they then start coming, okay, you know, but, but what about... Right? And they feel very reluctant to give up the um, fixed points and assumptions they had before. Um, that happens nearly everywhere. It's not actually a place thing, it's an age thing. Um, younger Jews are much less bothered by this Schwerzsteiner-Yid thing. Um, older Jews carry it very heavily, and it's not least something to do with experience and history, of course. Um, but I don't think it's different in... Of course, uh, Jews live in places very lightly. You know, so, of course, American Jews are different to French Jews, and French Jews are different to Turkish Jews. But at some level, we're all only temporarily here in our heads. And therefore, American Jews are really Polish or Lithuanian or Iraqi or whatever in their heads, especially when they start doing Jewish. Right? So they bring all that baggage in. Uh, and so where they happen to be, doesn't necessarily tell you anything about where their heads happen to be. It only tells you where their feet happen to be. 
Um, so I, I'm not sure that, uh, for example, you know, if I, uh, in Australia, um, found a huge amount of resistance to this, um, in Melbourne in particular, was a very large uh, population of uh, Holocaust survivors, right? And entirely understandably, of course, it's, the Holocaust is so huge that it's almost impossible. You can't see past it. So it blocks out everything else. Um, in, in Turkey, um, I, haven't, I mean, I, I don't tend to give the same lecture every time, actually. You're going to suffer that here, <laughs> uh, although I'll bore myself, so it will be slightly different on each occasion otherwise. Um, uh, but in Turkey, where I've talked about something like this, the Turks are much more ready to do this. Faradim generally are more optimistic about life than Ashkenazim. Right? Ashkenazim look at the world at large and go, oh, there's a problem. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Spiritim look at the world at large and go, oh, there's an opportunity. Right? You know. um, so, uh, and that's something to do with the fact that you know, Ashkenazim are kind of Christian Jews and Spiritim are Muslim Jews. You know, it's a different sort of approach altogether. Um, so Sephardi communities are more comfortable with this because um, Sephardi, not least, of course, weren't smashed up by the Shoah um, in the same way. There were some Sephardi communities that were. Um, and therefore it's a, a less dominant a narrative for them. And although they strongly remember the Spanish Inquisition, the expulsion from Spain, uh, they also have a strong sense of the good fortune and flexibility and... Uh, and, and superiority of Jews over the world at large. Um, yes, I know time's running on. We've got one, two. Can we take the two and done? Yes. If you gave this lecture in Israel, what would be, be the, the reaction of the Israelis? Oh, thank you for that. The Israelis hate it. They hate it. Absolutely hate it. Because... I'm sorry, yes, the question was, if I've given this kind of lecture in Israel, what's the reaction of Israelis, right? Um, I, I say again, I don't tend to give the same lecture often because, uh, as I say, I bore myself, and I like to think of new things anyway. Um, but in this particular instance, or taking this kind of approach, Israelis hate it. And the reason is, of course, that Israelis, um, although it's changing, it's changed in the last 15, 20 years, but Israelis have been brought up on the, on the old Zionist doctrine of the negation of the diaspora, right? The diaspora is doomed, uh, and therefore um, Israel is the only answer to the Jewish problem, right? Um, it, it, somebody coming along and saying, actually, the diaspora is not doomed, it's not bad, really, it's in fact been quite good, is something that uh, Israelis <laughs> find really very, very difficult and unattractive. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, we're very good at this. I mean, we're remarkably good at maintaining this, right? People will go to Israel, which is probably the only country in which Jews are killed as Jews. And they'll go to Israel and go, you know, I feel safe here. <laughs> right? It's very odd, isn't it? Very odd. Um, so we've got some strange narratives going on in our heads, uh, which are not necessarily anything to do with simple information or fact. Uh, but that's fine, because, you know, the capacity of Jews to live six inches off the ground is kind of quite an important skill we have, uh, a determination to avoid reality um, when we choose. Um, that, that's, I think, quite a strong thing. There was one last question over there, sir. I think I understand what you're saying is not to negate understanding the negative parts of the history, 
but to pull up and emphasize some of the factors that led to that, which is sort of a positive prehistory that's unknown. You're not arguing to say we shouldn't be learning about the expulsion, not the, the, the show and things like that. But you're arguing instead that we should understand some of the factors and some of the positive parts of history that are completely neglected. Am I, am I getting that right? Yes, you're absolutely getting that right. I, I'm not in any way trying to deny the catastrophes that have befallen the Jewish people. And the grim experience, I mean, that would be appalling, wouldn't it, to deny the grim experiences that Jews have suffered. I'm not, absolutely not trying to do that at all. But I, I guess if you study American history, um, you've got all kinds of bits of narrative to tell, haven't you? And taken overall, if I'm not mistaken, the general thrust of American history as told is, is kind of positive and optimistic. In America's going places it may have lost its confidence recently, but generally speaking, going places and feeling good about itself and, and achieved good stuff and, and right and in amongst that, of course, there's some horrible moments, not least the Civil War and uh, you know Native Americans and you know all of those things are horrible in there. One would hope that a, a good history course on on America will include those things, but taken overall. It would be absurd not to look at America and think this is a story of success. It's taken overall as a remarkable place with remarkable achievements. It's got its challenges, it's got its horrible um, uh, events and secrets and experiences which need telling. So, some of those things, of course, making America stronger as a result. Some of them still echoing and reverberating unresolved. Uh, there. Um, but the story is an optimistic story. And that's what I want to say about telling Jewish history. If we're going to tell Jewish history, we shouldn't uh, negate or understate the, the negative experiences, but taken overall for a global people over 3,000 years who have landed up here now in 2012, right at the top of the human heap, and having repeatedly been at the top of the human heap, it's pretty sad that we tell a story of history which is an endless catalogue of misery. Uh, and that's what I want to try and redress and, and put right. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat>